Let's uh, open uh, scriptures, first of all, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. It's a privilege to be here uh, with you, and I was asked to speak on this topic of guilt and shame. So there's many scriptures we'll refer to, but two that we're going to read. Genesis 2 and verse number 25, Adam Male and female has been uh, created and are in the garden, and this is their marriage. Verse number 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, has God said, and you know the story of the, the temptation, Go down to verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who has told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Very blamey. Verse 13, the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this thou hast done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. She's also shifting blame, though not quite as, as sort of caustic as Adam, the male. Let's, uh, then the curse is pronounced, but let's go down to verse number 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them, and then they are evicted from the garden. That's the Old Testament. Now let's turn to John chapter 8 in the New Testament. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and uh, verse 1 Every man went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, wasn't what they saw, it's what they heard, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? 
She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So we're going to look at the uh, topic of guilt and, and shame. You know, uh, guilt is largely linked with uh, wrong things that we have, have done. You can see on the verse on the screen the words in Ezra 9 in the time of the exile and Israel, of course, confessing uh, all of their wrongdoing. And here's this prayer, Oh my God, I am ashamed. There's the shame and blush to lift my face to you because shame is this emotion that means I can't, I gotta hide from you. I can't uh, look at you. But then they go on, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And so guilt is clearly something that we've done that's wrong. It is, it tends to be more ob- objective. You know, you've done something wrong. Now sometimes we talk about feeling guilty, but guilt in its truest sense is, is, is something that we have done wrong and we incur judgment before God. I guess you might say then that the uh, subjective side of guilt, the feelings of guilt that we have are actually legitimate shame. So while uh, guilt focuses on our actions, shame focuses on this idea of our personhood, that we are, we don't want somebody looking at us because we are embarrassed of what they are going to uh, see. So guilt is actions, shame is persons, guilt is linked with punishment, whereas shame is always this fear of exposure that leads to hiding oneself and to and to isolation. These are the sort of the general ideas that we're going to be taking a look at. Now, when we uh, go into this, uh, you know, there, there's a, a healthy part of shame. You know, somebody that has absolutely no shame is essentially a, you know, a sociopath. And I'm reminded of the words in Zephaniah 3, the unjust knows no shame. It's a, it's, it's somebody that lives in a really bad space who is willing to do what's wrong and to, and to sin and, and not to blush. That's the legitimate part of shame. But what I want to show you is that actually shame is, is much more than just feeling bad for true guilt. It's also this feeling of isolation, often the accompanying fear, the uh, desolation, even the anger at the prospect of being exposed. And we see these themes, don't we, in, in Genesis where we've read. In chapter 2, the male and the female are together. There's no isolation. They're naked and able to see one another. There's this exposure in a relationship of, of love. And it's the picture of no shame, as we read in the scriptures. They've done nothing wrong. They're both very good. But what changes in chapter 3 is that their eyes are opened. And now there is sin in their hearts. They've disobeyed against God. And, and they're embarrassed with one another because they've done wrong. And the evil in their hearts, they can mutually see. They want to hide from each other. That's why they put fig leaves on and they want to hide from God. That's why they run into the trees. So there's this isolation. There's this fear. There's a theologian from the last century. His name was Bonhoeffer. And here's what he said about Genesis 3. Man perceives himself in his disunion with God and with men. He perceives that he is naked, lacking the protection, the covering which God and his fellow man afforded him. He finds himself laid bare, and there arises the shame. 
Shame is man's ineffaceable recollection of his estrangement from the origin and its grief for this estrangement and the powerless longing to return to unity with God. You know, we don't just see shame in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but also in John 8 where we have, have read this woman had done something wrong. She had committed adultery, but but it's not just guilt that's in view. There's shame. Her her being is being exposed, and and she's being uh, exposed as somebody who is not good enough. That's the key word behind shame. And, and this is what these men are trying to do. They're trying to expose her, and their process is fraught with all kinds of distortions and contradictions. I mean, she was caught in the act of adultery, but why didn't the men bring the man? And why, why so public? Really, really, they didn't want to deal justice or grace with her. They wanted to trap Jesus. And in the process, they use her as a tool. They dehumanize her. They can't take away her humanity, but they treat her as if she is not human. Instead of acknowledging that they themselves too are broken and also made in the image of God, religion has a terrible way of dehumanizing and shaming people. They're basically saying, look at her, piece of garbage, deserving of exposure and death. This is shame. It's not just what she's done, it's who she is. And it's that strong emotional reaction. How does Jesus respond? He knows that he's being trapped. Of course, we we know the, the dichotomy, right? Jesus came across as the fulfillment of the law, but also the conveyor of grace. And so they thought, we'll trap him. If he denies the law, we'll get him on that count. If he, if he uh, shows grace. But, but if he keeps the law as we understand it, then he'll come across as a cruel man. We'll get him. And what does Jesus do? He writes on the ground. We don't really know what he was writing. People have proposed the law, their sins. We don't know. It is interesting. I wonder if it might have been the law because just like on this occasion, Jesus wrote twice. The law, when it was given, was given twice, right? And the first giving of the law, when Moses went and got the Ten Commandments, it was a writing of judgment, wasn't it? Moses gets the law. Israel is down in the bottom of the mountain uh, breaking the law. And Moses comes down, breaks the tablets, and Israel is judged. And if you read in Exodus 20, those Ten Commandments, they're very clear. God is going to punish disobedience. And although he says that he is compassionate, he downplays that attribute. And it's the judgment of God that is especially in view. But in Exodus 34... The second giving of the law takes place. And it wasn't a writing of judgment. It was at this point that Israel, as an unfaithful wife, an unfaithful covenant partner of the Lord, should have been put away. But God says, I love you. And I'll take you back. And the second writing of the law was a writing of grace. And you read it in Exodus 34. We'll come to it in a moment. God says over and over, I am the, I am the compassionate and, and gracious and slow to anger and abundant in mercy. That kind of God. And he, he upplays his positive kindness and he downplays his negative justice. And at the very time when Israel deserved judgment, God pedals out in the front. He pedals his grace. Same as here. The first writing of the law of Jesus in the ground was judgment. 
the people were condemned, they had to leave. The second writing of the law was a writing of grace. So she's being shamed, and it's grace that is going to bring her back. But you know, the sense of isolation and fear that goes along with shame goes way beyond true guilt. For example, sometimes it's experienced when somebody is connected with someone who is guilty. So I put some scriptures up here on the on the slide in Proverbs. Uh, we read these words, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. And so here's a father who's embarrassed of his son, unable to show his face, fear of being known. And so there's shame not for something that he's done, but for himself. Then in Psalm 25, we read these words, Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And many Psalms give words like this. And it's this idea that when somebody triumphs over me, I appear small and weak. And it's not anything I've done. It's I'm ashamed of who I am in this comparison that I'm not good enough. Similarly, in Luke 16, the man who says, I am ashamed to beg. He thought it was a job that was too low. And he's ashamed. So shame, guilt is what we do. Shame is the feeling of loneliness and isolation and fear of exposure. The interesting thing about shame is that it's laced through the life of Jesus. We see it in full spectrum. Right from his lineage in Matthew 1, there are four shadowy women. Tamar, Rahab, prostitute, Ruth, the Moabitess, Bathsheba, And it's not downplayed, these women in the lineage of Jesus. Shame. But it wasn't just his lineage, it was his parentage. In John, we read that accusation that the leaders make. We are not born of fornication as if to insinuate that you are. Oh yeah, virgin mother, now we've heard it all. And it was the cloud over the life of Jesus He was born illegitimately was their accusation. Shame. His associations. I love this quote from one writer, McNish, who said that in Jesus, the shame culture is, is breaking down. He turns shame on its head. He's fraternizing with Samaritans and Syrophoenicians, the racial disconnection, with hemorrhaging women, with lepers and demoniacs, the social outcasts, with adulteresses, tax collectors and prostitutes, the people guilty of sin. You see, he's turning shame on his head and he's saying, I'll embrace these people who have been put on the outside who can't show their face. And right to the end, of course, we have with Jesus in his death, hanging naked on a cross. To the untrained eye, he's a criminal. Shamefully treated. But Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says, he despised the shame. So that's a little introduction to what's going on with guilt and shame. Now I I want to take you through what it means. How are we going to be healed from guilt and shame? And we'll start with guilt and then we'll proceed to to shame. In a word, whether it's true or false guilt, because we'll talk about that in a moment, or whether it's shame, what's going to set us free is the truth. Jesus said that, John 8, the truth sets us free. And it's going to be the truth as we were singing in our hymns of God's grace. You see, false guilt, you know, when somebody tries to 
shame you for something that's not wrong, that's false guilt. It is no basis in reality. And most of what we experience is shame, except that little piece of shame for sin. Most of what we experience is shame. It's not based in reality. We're embarrassed about things that are not wrong. It's kind of like a signal from a drunken signalman, warning of a train that's not coming. A signal from a drunken signalman, warning about a train that's not coming, and we listen to it. We, we, we make decisions based on it. That's what false guilt and that's what most of shame is about. I want you to think, first of all, about shame repaired by the grace of God. Notice that as this woman is brought face to face with Jesus, there is no word of condemnation. It is the gospel, a pure offer of undeserved grace. Now, of course, it's balanced by Jesus' words, go and sin no more. But, but the main upfront offer is, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. All of the others had to leave because they were sinners. They could not abide Jesus' teaching that the one without sin cast the first stone. But Jesus had stayed. He had no sin. He was justified in judging her and condemning her. But he said, neither do I condemn you. And when we come humbled in our sin before the cross of Jesus Christ, there is nothing but grace. He says these words, neither do I condemn you. My prayer is that each one of us will hear these words as if from Jesus again. Whatever you're carrying from your past, whatever guilt you're carrying, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. It's great riches. I remember hearing about a a man in Texas back in the Depression. His name was Mr. Yates. He was struggling to make ends meet until one day the oil prospectors came and asked to dig on his property. And it was then that they discovered the largest the largest deposit of oil in the United States, in Texas. And overnight, he became a billionaire. Or did he? Actually, he was always a billionaire. He owned the land. He just didn't realize it. You see, the power of the truth of these words, neither do I condemn you. Oh, this is, this is, This is us being freed by the love of God and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, genuinely freed from sin. You're familiar with the story of the uh, pilgrim. Let's just watch this for a minute or two. Because this is what happens when it dawns on us, either as new Christians for the first time, or again and again in our Christian life, we come back to the cross and realize his death is enough for all of my guilt. Just watch this modern rendition of Pilgrim. His burden seemed heavier than ever. He wondered if relief would ever come. But Christian's faith kept him moving forward. He would soon find himself at a place called Salvation.
guilt healed by the grace and the love and the blood of Jesus Christ. But it goes more. It goes more than than us just having our sins forgiven. I've used the example from another writer. You know, imagine in a society where prostitution is, is illegal, but the king decides to show his grace by offering a pardon to all prostitutes who come forward and and confess, and they are given a a full pardon. That would be grace. That would be forgiveness. And that would be wonderful. But imagine if the king said, I am going to choose one of those women to become my queen. Become my queen. That would be grace on a totally higher level. And it would be grace that would change her behavior. And so it's it's like us as Christians, although we could theoretically commit any sin and not be liable, that's the grace that comes by Jesus' cross. The fact that we are unfaithful ones who have been made into the bride, the wife of Jesus Christ. We are in a relationship that is so, so precious. This is what causes us to move away from sin. The lever between our guilt and God's wrath has been disabled by the grace of the Lord Jesus. But more than that, we have been made daughters and sons of the Lord our God. And many of us as Christians, we haven't embraced this truth deeply in our hearts. We go around with what uh, I've heard called worm theology. And it comes across very pious and humble. You know, I'm a worm. I've always been a worm. I'll always be one. I'm just a worm. Some of our hymnology doesn't help. You are not a worm. You are a daughter of the king, a princess. You are a son of the king, a prince. You are not a worm. That is the grace of the Lord Jesus that deals that deals with our guilt. But you know, I want to come now not just to guilt being repaired by the grace of God. I, I want to talk about guilt being repaired by grace from others. This is sort of reviewing some of the things that were talked about last year at Healing and Hope when uh, Caleb and I talked about forgiveness and, and reconciliation. Because sometimes, you know, we have committed a sin and we've confessed it to God. And it's clear with God. But we still feel the residual effect. And the Bible's teaching is so clear on this that sometimes we will benefit by a reconciling sort of grace. So the way this works, you read the scripture there in Genesis 42, you know the, the story. Joseph's brothers have betrayed him and, and now they've been brought to their, their knees. And, and what do they confess? They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul and we did not listen. 
But what happens? They are humbled before Joseph, and as Joseph confronts them, they admit their sin, and there is forgiveness and reconciliation. Sometimes, you know, guilt on the human level needs to be dealt with by appropriate apologies. Last year, we uh, dealt with it from the lens of the person who has been offended and the responsibility to forgive and reconcile as appropriate. I, I mentioned this last year, but I just want to go over it briefly. If you are the one who has been offending, you have a responsibility as well. And I think many Christians, we, we don't know how to give good apologies. Beyond <laughs> saying, sorry. And we grunt it out and expect that to change anything. You know, it's, it, they're cruddy apologies. And no wonder when they don't work. Here's an, an acronym that might help you with uh, how to make a good apology. And of course, the larger the, the, larger the, uh, the crime, uh, the larger the sin, the more of these pieces come together. But here's the, here's the basic pieces. Confess. It starts with admitting what I've done wrong. I did it. And then offering apology. It means, I'm sorry, I feel badly about this. And then noting pain. This is a key one that many miss. Because many people, especially narcissists, when they make an apology, they, they flip quickly and say, I'm really sorry, but you know, I was really, I, I couldn't do anything else and you know, I was in a bad state. This is not about you. This is about the person you've hurt. Get out of yourself. And get into their skin and note their pain. Something like, I've hurt you and I can see it's, it's been hard for you. And then to say forever value because what you've done has assaulted their relationship. So say, say, you know, I, I, I do value our relationship. Equalize. How can I make it up to you? Zacchaeus did this naturally. He wanted to, he wanted to restore fourfold. How can I make it up? This is a big part of a, of a good apology, equalizing. I think this is, a lot of Christians, we fail on this one. We think, oh, I'm good to go. Blood of Jesus cleansed me. So, you know, you've got no more claims on me. Whoa, that's good for us with God. But if I want to repair my breach with you, I'm probably going to have to do something to make it better. Equalize. Say never again and seek forgiveness. And you see, when there can be serious confessions made and forgiveness extended, this is grace. And this is grace that allows guilt to be repaired on the human level. But I want to come for the last few minutes and talk to you. I'm not going to go over this. We don't have time. Uh, it's very similar to what I've just been saying. I want to talk now for a few minutes at the end about, about shame. We've talked about guilt repaired by the blood of Jesus at the cross, repaired by honest, heartfelt confessions, admission of guilt where appropriate. And I'm acknowledging in all of this false guilt. I'm not talking here about people that make you feel guilty for something that wasn't wrong. That's kind of like people who amputees who have phantom pains, right? That's like false guilt. People that have their legs cut off can sometimes feel pain in the leg that's no longer there. It's a genuine feeling, but the leg isn't there. And false guilt, phantom pains. But now what I want to talk about then, embracing that together, I want to talk to you a little bit about shame, drawing on what we learned earlier. 
What are some of the markers of shame? We see this in the scripture a lot. Blaming. Blaming is, is one that came up really clearly in Genesis 3, wasn't it? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. When somebody is feeling shame, it's really hard to own up to who I am. It's really easy to find a scapegoat, blaming. When you're blaming other people, just ask yourself, is it really true or am I running? Is this some feeling of shame that's washing over me? Another part of shame is moralizing. We see this in John chapter 8. See these men? They're criticizing this woman, putting her down and putting themselves up. And this is exactly why Jesus puts his finger on their sin. Self-righteousness can be a, a really a really subtle uh, defense mechanism to hide our shame. Think of Simon the Pharisee. Remember that story when the when the uh, likely the prostitute woman came in and kissed Jesus' feet, and of course she was showing up the Pharisee who had accepted Jesus into his house, but had shown him no hospitality. And so she is being, she's showing him up and he's embarrassed. And so he has to put her down. Self-righteousness, moralizing, comparing. I've imagined this in the, in the rela- uh, relationship of Saul and David. As Saul is moving off the scene and David is coming on, it's hard. And David, Saul can't face the comparison that God has chosen him instead. He's ashamed. Shame works in blaming, it works in moralizing, it works in comparison. It works in perfectionism. Those of you who, like me, are perfectionists, you don't want anybody to see your weakness because you're embarrassed. And probably, probably your perfectionism is unrealistic. God doesn't expect people to be that perfect. He's okay with just normal people. but you're not, probably because you had parents that, well, anyway, we'll go down that a little bit later. But we're shaped by our families, and so this for us as parents, what kind of families are we, are we creating? What are we teaching our kids? Is it okay to have weakness? Is it okay to make mistakes and apologize and repair? Or do we need to be perfect? If it's the latter, we're setting up our kids for failure. Total shame. And in the worst case, it can lead to unworthiness, defeatism. I'm no good. I've got nothing to offer. Those are the markers of shame. What's the cure? I'm going to talk about three things. The cure for shame. And it's essentially the same as guilt. The cure for shame is the truth regarding grace. See, Adam and Eve tried to deal with their shame by self-atonement, by self-protection. Instead of going to God and asking for his forgiveness and his covering, they tried to cover themselves up, first by leaves, then by trees. And what we're going to see is that the real cure for shame was to come out into the open and be honest. And when you come out into the open with God, you don't experience condemnation. You experience love. The only people who experience God's condemnation are people who hide. That's it. You come into the open and confess. He drops all the accusations. And he loves. 
I want you to think, first of all, of grace in our God image. What I mean by this is, how do you think of God? How do you think of God? That's your image of God. Some people have an image of God that is what you might call monarchical. You know, he's different from humans. He has no body. He is pure. He is perfect. He is rational. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is a punisher. And that's their image of God. Nothing to balance it with regard to his compassion. If that is your image of God, you are an idol worshiper. Because that God does not exist. He is not the true God. Oh, all of those things can be found in God, but that is not the full picture of God. So if that is what you are worshiping as God, you are an idolater. You are worshiping a God that does not exist. It's distorted. People who experience shame... uh, will often have these these issues. So, for example, people who have experienced abuse in their families, they will often think of God as cruel and capricious. Paul says it in Ephesians 3, that God the Father is the, is, he's the archetypal Father. Every father is named after Him. That's why we as fathers ought to be like God as much as we can. But the flip also happens when we do it wrong. And I'm not, don't factor in perfectionism. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. But when we, when we do it terribly wrong, we leave our kids with this wrong impression of who God is. And so in abuse cases, they think, oh, my father was cruel. Other men in my life were cruel. God must be cruel. People who are raised with perfectionism will often think of God as demanding, unforgiving. People who are raised in families like Isaac's family will think of God as selective and unfair because they experience favoritism. Any wonder that Jacob needed to become the conniver that he did? It was his way through. It was wrong, but it was his way through. People who are raised in distant families, they'll feel that God is distant and unavailable. And so what we need to do is we need to come and understand what is God really like? And what I want you to see is that God is also compassionate. He became human. He had a body. He experienced human weakness, thirst, and tiredness, and other things. He was emotional. He was a forgiver. And when we have that sense of who God is, our God image changes. Think of Adam and Eve, how they experienced this. Very interesting. Even in the day of the rebellion's curse, grace was front and center. Before God expels them from the garden, what does he do? He clothes them. He doesn't expel them and then clothe them. He clothes them and then expels them because God, all through the Bible, is compassionate before He is condemning. That is the theme of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And they knew it. If they had not thought of God as the compassionate God when He called for them, they would have never come out. They were embarrassed, but they knew that when they came out, they would be loved. I've already told you about Israel's history in Exodus 34, the second giving of the law. And here's the scripture. What do they come to discover? 
our God, oh yes, he judges sin, but above everything else, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And of course, it goes without saying that the woman in John 8, she found that God in flesh was not the same as the God that those punitive religious leaders projected. So I want to ask you, what is your God image? My, if you viewed it as on a spectrum, you know, people that totally see God as all justice, no love, and people that see God as all love, no justice, basically God is in the middle a little bit towards here, right? My point is, is that the more your idea of God is towards here, the more you will struggle with shame. And you will be healed by correcting your God image. When you know God as he is, a God of grace and love. It's very interesting. I read a a study about kids that have been abused and shamed. Here are their beliefs. A feeling of duty produces love. Parents deserve respect simply because they're parents. Children don't deserve that. Self-esteem is harmful. Low self-esteem makes somebody altruistic. Tenderness is harmful. Severity and coldness prepare you for the realities of life. I can hear preachers saying that. It's disgusting. Sorry, that was not in my notes. The way you behave is more than the way you really are. Strong feelings are harmful. That's how abused people think. God doesn't believe that stuff. Parents deserve respect simply because they're parents. God is the ultimate parent and he didn't behave that way. He didn't say respect me or else. He came down and he inspired respect by dying for A high degree of self-esteem is harmful. Jesus didn't behave that way. He treated the lowest as if they were so special. He didn't believe that for a second. Tenderness is harmful. God and Jesus are tender. Grace in our God image. But I want to say secondly, shame Healing us when it comes to our experience of acceptance with God. I said to you already that the cure is the truth. That sort of implies that the problem behind shame is the lies, the false expectations. These come from all kinds of places, secular culture. So think of people who are ashamed of their body. They've been told that only a certain kind of body is beautiful. And I don't have that body, so I must not be beautiful. But the culture is lying. It's a crock. It's not true. And it produces shame. Not just false expectations from secular culture, graceless religion, that's John 8. Harsh, legalistic churches are petri dishes for shame. And unaccepting parents. This one speaks to me as a father. See, if I'm not modeling this God of grace, doesn't mean no rules, but it means that front and center is grace. 
My kids are going to have shame. I love this quote from one Christian author. Guilty people need forgiveness. Shamed people need a sense of the valued self. So if you come back to John 8, this woman in her shame, we've looked at Genesis 3, but look at this one now. And in her moment of most intense vulnerability, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. He means, and she can feel it in his tone and in his poise. He's been on the ground looking up at her. And now he's standing at eye level. And he's saying, I love you. I accept you. Of course, he will tell her ultimately to sin no more. But that is not the primary point. First, he says, I will deal with your shame and your disconnection and your loveliness, unloveliness. And I will repair it by my empathetic and compassionate grace. And so remember, sister, brother, the truth about your acceptance. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he's made us accepted in the beloved. That word is the word for grace. We are accepted. We are accepted in the beloved. You know, there's a a song by Matthew West. I thought about playing it, but it might be a little bit... uh, edgy for some, but I think the words are golden. Hello, my name is. Hello, my name is regret. I'm pretty sure we have met every single day of your life. I'm the whisper inside that won't let you forget. Hello, my name is defeat. I know you recognize me. Just when you think you can win, I'll drag you right back down again till you've lost all belief. These are the voices. These are the lies. And I have believed them for the very last time. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. I've been saved. I've been changed. I have been set free. Amazing grace is the song I sing. Hello, my name is child of the one true king. We don't have time to go into these next ones. I mean, you could trace it in the, in the life of Jesus all the way through. This is what Jesus' MO was. He treated people with grace to reduce their shame. Think of the prodigal who had strayed from his true self and he comes back and he experiences the grace of the Father. Think of Zacchaeus. What does Jesus do? He looks at him. He's accepting him. And it prompts his repentance. It wasn't repentance first, love later. Jesus confronted him with love first and looked at him and said, come. And then he repented. It's the message of the Bible. This is the gospel. What does it do for us? What does it do for us? Two things I just want to fit in here. This understanding of us being cleansed by the grace of the Lord Jesus, realizing who he is, a God of compassion, and hearing his word of acceptance. Here's how we understand it. We know that God requires perfection. We just know that in our sanctification, it's not going to happen until the coming kingdom. Here in this time, we're in progress. We're not there yet. And we try, and we do it by the Spirit, but we're not, we're not there yet. And what does this allow us to do? I love, I love the words of the Apostle Paul. It gives us confidence. Some of us teach our children 
things that are, are not helpful. We put them down. You know, over on this side, there's, there's hubris and pride. And we rightfully disdain that. But is there any place for appropriate self-confidence and pride? You know, sort of like looking at your kid and saying, there's my boy. Or looking at your life and saying, I got that done. Paul did it. I put it on the screen there, 2 Timothy 4. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. You see, when we experience the grace of the Lord, we don't have to wash ourselves in shame. We can live ourselves and stand in appropriate confidence. We don't have to listen to those lies of shame. Our worth leads to confidence that leads to action. I want to just show you the words of, this is not a Christian researcher, but I I thought this was pretty powerful sort of reinforces what I've been saying about God's truth to you. The people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. And so as Christians, we just start by believing that God loves us. We're accepted. But she talks about shame. She's a shame researcher. And it's not biblical, but I thought it was interesting. Just take a look at this, and I hope it'll lead to some insight and confidence. What's going on here? There. You know what the big secret about TED is? I can't wait to tell people this. I I guess I'm doing it right now. Um, (laughs) This is like the failure conference. No, it is. You know why this place is amazing? Because very few people here are afraid to fail. And no one that gets on the stage so far that I've seen has not failed. I have failed miserably. Many times, I don't think the world understands that because of shame. There's a great quote that saved me this past year by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, A lot of people refer to it as the man in the arena quote. And it goes like this. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. But when he's in the arena at best, he wins. And at worst, he loses. But when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that's what this conference to me is about. That's what life is about, about daring greatly, about being in the arena. When you walk up to that arena and you put your hand on the door and you think, I'm going in and I'm going to try this, Shame is the gremlin who says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not good enough. You never finished that MBA. Your wife left you. I know your dad really wasn't in Luxembourg. He was in Sing Sing. I know you. there's things that happened to you growing up. I know you don't think that you're pretty enough or smart enough or talented enough or powerful enough. I know your dad never paid attention even when you made CFO. Shame is that thing. And then if we can quiet it down and walk in and say, I'm going to do this. We look up and the critic that we see pointing and laughing 99% of the time is who? Us. Shame drives two big tapes. Never good enough. And if you can talk it out of that one, who do you think you are? I thought that was really cool. I mean, I found the stuff in the Bible, but she said it too. 
or how much is shame a part of your life? The last thing I'm going to leave with you, we don't have time to explore it, is not just grace in how we understand God and grace in our appreciation of our acceptance before God, but grace in our churches. Grace in our churches. You know, there's Grace Church in New York. I wouldn't have known except I Googled it, but that's not really Grace Church. Grace Church happens when we reach out with empathy to one another. This is what Jesus' life teaches us, empathy and compassion. This is actually what we learn uh, from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Don't hide. Come out in the open and be transparent. The reason why Adam and Eve felt no shame was they felt perfect trust. And that's exactly what's carried through in the New Testament into John 8. We've already talked about it. Jesus is looking at her and he's saying those words and the two things match. Neither do I condemn you. Imagine Jesus at the cross. and His mother is there, embarrassed that her son is being crucified. And what happens? Jesus says to John, look, your mother. And a bond of shame became enveloped by a bond of love. Do you know how shame is reduced? It's reduced when we become vulnerable to people that we love, and instead of pushing us away, they embrace us, and they love us. That's how shame is reduced. We maybe can't get rid of shame, but we can reduce it by listening to people's stories without judgment including people, allowing people to speak the truth, even if the truth is difficult. I hope, I hope that our churches are places not that increase shame, but that reduce it by appropriate vulnerability and compassion and empathy. I'll leave it there. Thank you.